Hello and welcome to this July 2012 edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is novelist Kirsty Gunn. Kirsty was born and brought up in New Zealand, in a culture, as you'll hear, that was resolutely Scottish. Her first novel, Rain, was published by Faber in 1994, since when five further works of fiction have followed. In terms of scale and ambition, though, it would be fair to say that her new book, The Big Music, Seven Years in the Writing, marks a new departure. The big music of the title is a pibroch, the formal music of the Highland bagpipes, the most intricate and demanding bagpipe music for both player and listener, far removed from the so-called little music of dance tunes and marches. The texture, the very essence of this music, is woven into the structure of the book, which is in itself a transposition of the pibroch in four movements, a theme and variations. Just as the music returns to its theme to develop it, so too does the story, embellishing here, recasting it in a different light there. The Pibroch provides more than the structure, though, for the book tells the story of the Sutherland family of Sutherland, a dynasty of pipers and teachers of the Pibroch stretching back generations. In particular, it tells the story of John Sutherland, an octogenarian, who left the grey house in the remote Sutherland hills to make his fortune, vowing never to return and yet was drawn back after his father's death, drawn even to pick up the pipes again after his father had set them down. History, families, stories, repeat, the book seems to suggest, but like the music, there can be no straight repeat. Repetition always comes with variation. Michael Bywater, reviewing the big music in The Independent, said of it, The result isn't what you'd call a success, not even a qualified success. The result is a masterpiece. Gunn solves the problem she has set herself, not by writing about the music, but by some strange meticulous magic writing within it. The intricacy and complexity of the Pibroch are acknowledged throughout the book, so I began by asking Kirsty about her own way into the music. Well, I knew about, I've always known about Pibroch because my father's a piper, so I have that kind of first-hand knowledge of the form and the music itself. Um, having said that, and I've known, and I'd known for a very long time, I wanted to use that form to provide structure for a work of fiction. And having said that, having having these very clear things in my mind, the deeper I got into researching and coming to understand in greater detail that form and the music, the more confusing I found it. Someone said to me. Um, I was trying to explain this process of the more I read, I feel I've got my head around it, and then I'm kind of confused again, and I feel like I've got to go back to the beginning. Or I would be having these endless conversations with my father or with my father's friends, thinking I was getting it, and then, oh no. And someone said, oh golly, it sounds exactly like reading Finnegan's Wake. (laughs) That feeling of, yes, I think I've got it. Oh no, actually. Back to the drawing board. So yes, so there, there was that, and that, that process continued right through the seven years of finding the story. And I had, as I have with all my work, a very clear sense of where this book was to be set, and I had a clear sense of my opening line, the hills only come back the same, I don't mind. And I knew that I had this old man at the end of his life, up on the hills, with a newborn baby in his arms. But I knew nothing more than that. And it took me seven years to find out why he had the baby, 
what his relation to that baby was, why, why, why? These are the questions that writing helped me answer. And was the the Pibroch music which spoke to you from your first encounter with it, or did it take time for you to to begin to understand what was happening? Because bagpipe music in popular culture has a rather debased form, doesn't it? And in fact, your book reveals there is so much more bound up in it. So was that something which only gradually revealed itself to you? That's a great, that's a great question because obviously with growing up with the, with the sound of Pibroch all around me, and as you'll know, perhaps from reading the book, it's a very involved musical form and it takes a great deal of time and attention to learn a Pibroch at years. Top pipe, good pipers will say it takes years and years to learn a Pibroch. In fact, you never really do. Well, you set out in the book the stages of training for a piper and even by the advanced stage, you're only really on the foothills, aren't you? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So there's this kind of notion of it being extremely complex. Well, as a child, I appreciated it musically. We're quite a musical family. I knew it. Well, I knew that there was no reason to make all these silly jokes about bagpipes. I mean, I knew that from being, you know, from when I was very young. However, it took me a long time to appreciate the musical form of it and the musicality of it. And I think again, a bit like being a piper, this is something that one comes closer and closer to the more interested one is and the more attention one pays it's not like hearing mm, oh you know a classical piece of chamber music and thinking how lovely that is that seems very very approachable and easy compared to a pibroch which is much more hidden and complicated for all kinds of reasons not least to do with the fact that it's a different scale and the use of embellishments and so on is very precise and different and the basic form of the Pibroch is theme and variations. Now, mm. that clearly suggested a form for the novel to you, but that presents significant challenges. Um, I mean, at one point in the book, you mention that the ground, the basic theme, has to bear the weight of embellishment. So mm. in your case, for, with a novel, you had, to, you had to make that work. Can you tell me how you approached mm. that? Because there's a, a great deal of complexity built into that. Well, uh, as I say in the introduction to the book, the, the entire work of fiction is made up of all of these papers and files and kind of separate pages, if you like, that had to be arranged. I had to find a shape for them. But you're absolutely right. I, the, 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 again, the structure gave me a sense. I love that line of, um, of wolves. The sense of an impending shape keeps one at it, you know, even in the midst of this confusion of where is this going and how does this all tie up and how do these things make sense, there's this overall sense of a shape. So yes, the Erla with its notion of ground and a base, uh, this is something that's quite literal in the book because we're introduced to the landscape of the book and we're in Medes Reis plunged right into the middle of that landscape right at the beginning. But also it introduces us to all the main themes and ideas and people of the book who then, of course, become embellished and deepened and made more complex as we go into the later variations. And because, as you say, the book is made up of all sorts of papers and transcripts and documents and commentaries, it remains open, I suppose. It, it points to the fact that it is not an end in itself. 
it mentions that there are transcripts still to be made, mm. documents still to be processed, which I thought was fascinating that it that it that its doors, as it were, remain open on other possibilities, other yeah. interpretations, other compilations. Yes, that's a really lovely point. And in fact, I remember when Lee Braxton, my editor, saw the book and we were talking about it. Originally, my title was uh, The Big Music, Collected Papers, and it was he who suggested selected papers for exactly that reason. And I think it's um, perfectly described. And absolutely, the book is open-ended and it feels... I was laughing, actually, with my sister who's been involved with it in terms of art installations and making various pieces. Uh, we feel like I feel like this book could go on for the rest of my life in so many respects. There are so many world, you know, kind of worlds that it's taken me into, and 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 places that I want to go. This idea of the of the various um, folded papers or files, this came to me as a very kind of physical metaphor somehow. I mean, I just loved this idea of a work of fiction that was made up of all of these kind of separate statements that nevertheless were bound together. I think really when one looks back over the landscape of my work altogether, you will see this as a recurrent theme. My very first book that was published as a novel called Rain uh, was written and conceived as a cycle, as a series of short stories. And in actual fact, it was my idea uh, when I submitted it to, uh, to Faber that they could be read in any order. I quite like that idea. Of course, you know, there are all kinds of constraints on publishing and that was, that was impossible to follow through. But it's that, that's an idea that's continued and stayed with me. Featherstone, another work of fiction. Yes, it is collected around a weekend. It begins on Friday afternoon and finishes on Sunday morning. There's that sense of it being tied together. That's our construct, if you like. But there's the same thing. We've got these different stories that layer and interweave. So it's part of my writing practice, one might say. And that, that idea that you mentioned in Wolf about the form being emergent and latent also goes along with this sense of an emergent consciousness which is shaping the story because it's not it's not adventitious how these papers have come together. They're not you I mean you could read them in any order but you, you would you would lose by it. Mm. But this consciousness that is shaping it develops mm. as the book develops. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And I mean this is what makes writing so difficult and I often think of you know, the way Fitzgerald wrote his novels, and I'm rather envious because apparently he pasted the basic shape around the walls and then would kind of write to each week to where he needed the, the plot to be going and where he needed to get his characters to and so on. This kind of writing feels to me like colouring in or embroidery, the most delicious kind of, of entertainment, actually. Whereas what I'm doing feels very uncertain and uh, and full of questioning and doubt and one only understands as one's getting into it it's an extreme you know it's an heuristic process that one discovers what one means by making the great modernist statement how can I know what I mean until I see what I say so the extent to which these themes are going to be developed I mean I myself was constantly surprised by where the book took me um, and as I say at the beginning, I had no idea why he had that baby. I mean, what a bonkers idea. An old man about to die, a newborn baby in his arms, in this remote landscape. What on earth is that all about? 
And yet, by the time I finished writing the story after seven years, I absolutely knew and it all made sense and every single piece of the puzzle had fitted into place. Using this idea of the musical form of theme and variations must have presented challenges to you as a novelist because because often, you know, talking about Fitzgerald, time time tends to be quite linear in novels, and but in this book it's very much recursive because mm. of that. And that, that presents challenges in terms of, of overlapping and, and how you reveal knowledge and when you reveal knowledge. Yeah. I remember having a discussion with James Kalman a long time ago about time. Um, I admire his work tremendously. We were both absolutely agreeing with each other that there's no sentence that strikes chill into our hearts more than a sentence like suddenly he was aware this idea that a plot can be fed out piece by piece along the line that the that the reader is at the mercy of the narrator to meet out those details as and when a scene fit this to me is the last kind of reading experience I want for my readers. I want them to be in the midst of a process that they themselves are part of uncovering a story and coming to awareness. And I want to create a, the kind of writing that is akin to the human experience, which is to be in the world and uncertain and without these great conclusions that the novel is constantly telling us that life is full of. There's a terrific uh, interview with uh, the, uh, the novelist Leonard Michaels in one of those old Paris reviews. Golly, it's good. And he just talks about the fact that no one has lives like the lives that we read in novels. Things don't happen that way. We don't have time for these great big paragraphs of realisation and so on. But what does happen is that we move backwards and forwards over time and bring new perception to things and change our understanding of old things and imagine what the new things may be and all of the, this kind of prolepsis and analepsis continues to play on our experience of the present so yes i very much want the reader to have that kind of rich full to my mind i hope very real experience mm. Well, I, I thought that the handling of time was, was marvellous. And one scene which sticks in my mind is when Callum, the son of the old man who's been on the hill, the old man who's dying, is coming back. And he is, he is himself delaying his return in so many ways before he gets to the house. But then even once he's in the house, you as a, you as a novelist manage in a way to kind of arrest time. And that scene is delayed and delayed and delayed. And then it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful when it eventually comes. Thank you. And I also love to do this thing of, um, I mean, again, I say love as though there's some kind of will involved and the will is there in the sense that one is making something that must be conveyed but there's a kind of an unconscious process at work too that must just kind of trust to certain things and and I think a part of my trusting process is a belief that one can do that hold for a minute and then come back and repeat and give the reader a different experience of what's just happened at one point in the book and this is very interesting to me too George is that as the writer of this book and someone who's written you know spent seven years a further year preparing it for publication I still now can't open it assuredly at any point and say this is what happens then you know the whole book feels like a kind of landscape to me it's the very opposite of where one might think, oh, right, so this is the bit where, as you just said, Callum comes home. Well, it actually could be anywhere in the book because we return to it. 
and cast our minds back over it. What did you want to do with the footnotes? The book is heavily footnoted and there are all sorts of information and comments. Are they like the grace notes on the, in the piping or are they filled a different function? It's a great question. All I can say to you is that I absolutely knew they were going to be there from the very beginning. Um, my writing process is like this. I always write my first drafts in longhand on recycled paper, often old short stories or galleys of previous books. And I write um, very, very quickly and, and freely, and it's extremely difficult. And I then go back and I put all that onto the computer and then I start the drafting process and I draft and redraft and redraft like a maniac. And I can tell you this, that the moment I put that first page up onto the screen, there was a footnote. So it, was some, it had its own inevitability, that being part of the process. And I now know that that was because my instinct to create an entire world was there at the beginning. It wasn't a story, it was a landscape. So to that extent, the footnotes provide ballast, I think, to that landscape. And also they allow me to, you know, continue my imaginative project, fictional imaginative project, which is to link the known and the unknown, the fact and the fictional, the dreamed up and the heartily known, the footnotes enabled all of this in the most wonderful way. We, we talked at the beginning, Kirsty, about how you first encountered the music. Tell me now how you first encountered the landscape of Sutherland. Well, I was born and brought up in New Zealand. My father's family are from that part of the world. And I was, ve- I was born, on, born and brought up in what I think is a very different New Zealand to the New Zealand I go and visit today. For this reason, it felt like a kind of colonial experience. Everyone referred to Scotland as home and Scotland was the reality. So to this extent I had the hills of Sutherland and the headlands of Caithness in my imagination. So I'd be constantly being told, oh this is like, you know, this is like the Pentland Firth or whatever. So we were constantly getting this vocabulary that made of this new world an old world. I've just written about these very things for um, an anthology. So when I first arrived in that place, it was, it was completely familiar to me. There was, nothing, there was nothing surprising about it at all. And I instantly felt very much at home. Now this particular part of Southern where the book is set is, like all my work, an imaginative place that takes in the real. So, There's a part where you might turn off the A9 and you might go inland and somewhere in there you would find the hills of Morveg and Lewis and you might find this road that takes you to the grey house. Now all that landscape is very close to places that are much loved by me and I have a lovely story about my husband. The very first night we went out we started talking about this part of Scotland that we loved very much and as our conversation went on it diverged it rather converged on this one particular road and neither of us could quite believe the other knew this road because it was very 
it's tiny. Um, and and that, your fates were sealed. Like, it felt very fatey, actually, but that's very close to where our house is now. In some ways, I mean, the landscape seems unchanging, but there's a great deal of change going on in the human world. The house itself grows and changes. It becomes a piping school. It becomes bigger. The men of the house go into the world. They go to London. They make fortunes. They come back. So there's there's always this this tension or this dialogue between continuity and and change. It's not. It's, it's by no means a a sealed little mm. world in a bubble. Mm, that's beautiful, and again, that reflects the things we were saying about the book itself. That it has this open-ended quality, and and the book represents the kind of flux that uh, the grey house itself represents as indeed human life represents and I love this um, this idea too at one point someone said oh you know I, I think it was something I think it was Mary at Faber we were talking about the fact that all the Piper's names start to merge and blur in the imagination and I made the point that this was absolutely intentional and uh, she said oh, so, you know thank goodness because I was thinking is it me and you know should I be keeping up more and so on but in actual fact that was completely intentional because I wanted all these lives to overlap and blend one life is the same in so many ways it's one of the themes of the book and to that end we came up with this idea of creating a table at the beginning just to make it very clear to the reader that it's okay I think we've got John Callum Mackay we've got John Mackay Callum we've got Callum John we've got Roderick John I can't remember precisely but it's absolutely important that all these names start to chime off one another I think I say one there's something in the book about you know one name could be them all for a Sutherland all time is a a blink of sunlight on the grass, something like that. Well, it's, it's another form of theme and variations. Not only is it, is it structurally theme and variations, but in the, in the human lineage there is, there is theme and variations, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And I love that idea too of, um, it's given us by the, the opera of, uh, operas of Wagner, this notion of leitmotif, that there may, may be a certain recurring sequence of notes and these have a particular kind of meaning. And that little theme then can emerge in my book either as a particular sentence or in the way that these names reflect and echo each other. These were all very deliberate musical devices that I used. I get the impression that piping is a very male world. It's passed down, as we were saying, through that male lineage. I don't know if there are, there are probably female pipers now, but it's certainly the period you're talking about it is it is a world of, of men and confraternity and whiskey and, and so on and the women provide the, the excellent dinner and then they retreat tell me a little bit about the female world of the novel I was very struck you say at one point the women in these places have too much tenderness and by tenderness you mean this heart flayed vulnerable quality mm. rather than softness so tell, tell me about the sort of female world because it's, it's equally mm. strongly evoked but very different I thought it was a book about fathers and sons. Uh, when, I, when I began, I thought that was entirely what this book was about. And then, of course, I realised it was about mothers and daughters, that the whole story can only be enabled by the women in the book. And that though they, in so many respects, seem to be invisible in these ways that you're describing, domestic and so on, in actual fact, that very project, that very domestic project, is enormously empowering and has enabled the entire project of the big fiction. 
It's allowed the writing of the Pibrochs. It's allowed the living of the lives. So to that extent, the book is extremely subversive in a way that I think is terrifically exciting. And I think that there will be some men that may find the book troubling for those reasons. I think the book throws quite a searching light on what it is to be a patriarch, to what it is to be a son, to what it is to be in the shadow of a great father, who may also be a bully, who may also be very kind and knowledgeable. And I think that to do that and to show as I do, and I hope to show truthfully the reality, what it might be like to have reached the end of a life that to all extent and per to, to all intent and purpose seems very successful with, I think I say, money made and spent, houses gained and bought, to have nevertheless got to the end of the life and to be wondering, have I lived fully? Have I loved? Have I, be on have I been honest with myself and those I care for? To be asking these questions right at the end of a, of a life's arc. I think the women enabled John to have that experience in the book. And again, this is something that defies the arc, the expectations of the traditional novel, whereby there's some kind of, oh, what is it? Some kind of narrative notion that our hero is going to reach understanding or not, but these things are somehow in the writer's gift. Well, no, I think the big music shows us that it's the careful uncovering, the revealing of detail that's enabled by these women in this domestic world that gives us the truth of John Sutherland's experience. Because the Sutherland men all, it seems to me, have a, a tendency to, to turn away from the world and retreat within themselves. Mm. And consequently, their roles as fathers are stunted, aborted, mm. abandoned mm. almost. Mm. Well, it's a kind of, um, I think this theme of loneliness comes through the book very strongly. And obviously the Sutherland family are living in a very lonely part of the world. And there's something in their nature that's described by that world. It's also in the fact that they've chosen to do this thing they do, to devote themselves to their art, which is a complicated and very time-consuming one. So this takes them away into themselves as well. But I think also it's the loneliness of, yeah, that, that, the kind of that self-containment that we know has a kind of um, spiritual quality to it, of course, is also deeply antisocial and has at its heart something very selfish probably like that of all artists have their kind of you know selfish heart no matter how much of human life they're exposing and no matter with how much love I remember that wonderful thing John Bailey talked about you know the greatness of Tolstoy was how much he loved all of his characters and I think we all love Tolstoy for his great, great heart. 
But nevertheless, Tolstoy the artist, to give us that great heart, took himself away. And you see that in in John Sutherland's father, don't you, who is obsessed with his music to the extent that he he really neglects being a father and the only real interaction with his son is to teach him the pipes, which he does in a very authoritarian, mm. oppressive way. So mm. the Pibroch is to the young John Sutherland not something that he that he willingly has passed on to him. It's only really after his father dies that he finds himself in the music. He comes back to it, exactly, and as, as though he has some kind of choice in the matter. I think as we read in and as I wrote on, I realise, I mean, I use that word, inevitable, there was no choice for him. Interestingly, there's something brutal about the music in the way that we see, in, in the way that we see that, as you, just, as you just rightly made that point, about the brutality of the way he was taught the instrument. You know, when a piper is playing a pibroch, perhaps at a competition or for others, if there's so much as a smurring of the note, they will put down their pipes and walk away. I mean, it's a kind of, it ha there's a kind of relentless uh, notion of perfection of technique and execution. Again, you wouldn't see this in other instruments. It does make it seem a little bit like professional athletics, you know, compared to walking onto a platform and playing, you know, the Brahms Violin Concerto, where you might have a particular cadenza that you would pick from your, your repertoire. That, mm. that, that aspect of it, I suppose, has elements of that patriarchal, somewhat oppressive mould being placed on on successive generations. Yeah. And the fact, that, the fact that the repertoire, it seemed to me, was quite a fixed one. It was quite difficult. You know, you had to almost sort of argue mm. for the inclusion of a new uh, pibroch within the repertoire. Am I, yeah. Or am I, am I reading, am no, I reading no, too much into not it? not at all. Not at all. And pipers are extremely protective of the repertoire and will let very little in. And there's a huge amount of... Um, Oh, you know, I'm talking now amongst the kind of the purists, but a huge amount of superstition and antagonism towards the idea of new music or a different approach or another way of playing. It's extremely fixed in these terms, as represented by the way it's played. And... Um, and you asked before about the kind of uh, masculinity, the maleness of the instrument. You're absolutely right. Women do play the pipes and are rated as being fine pipers, many of them. But at the end of the day, the piper will tell you it's a man's instrument because of the sheer phys physicality of the instrument demands a male player. Something to do with the expansion of the chest and the amount of air you can get into the bag, all these kinds of things. So in that case, by, by the time we get to the appendix, there's a reflection on the pipes as an expression of national identity. So, so is, it a, is it a complicated, exclusionary kind of emblem of national identity in your view? Well, not at all. I mean, this is the other kind of, this is the irony of the whole thing, because while we've been doing nothing but describing something that's complicated and, and I was brought up with it, but still feel that there's so much more to learn and to appreciate and so on. For all these reasons, a pibroch is very, very beautiful and is very grave 
and solemn and intricate and embodies within it all everything we go looking looking for in art mystery and a sense of unity and form all of these things are there and present it's ludicrous that when people think of the pipes yes they think of pipe bands or they think of all the usual jokes about a cat being strangled or and these jokes have always been around you know people have made there've been old bards singing songs about bagpipes forever and making those kinds of remarks but the fact is to hear the bagpipes beautifully played is transporting the issue, I think, is that not enough people hear a well-played pipe. When I had my launch at Dundee, um, I was very clear that I wanted a, a good piper there. And uh, the first thing the university said was, oh, yes, you know, that we can, we've got this chap and, you know, we use him for all our occasions. Now, the thing is, he couldn't play Pibroch. That was the first question I said. Can he play Pibroch? He, you know, no, he couldn't. And then we went through a number of pipers who put, all put their hands up, but none of them were good enough players and yet these were musicians that were being touted you know touted about for every you know the opening of an envelope <laughs> and regarded as oh you know we've got our piper well the fact is most people don't hear good piping well all the way through your book the question in my mind a question in my mind was should i go and find some pibroch on the internet and listen to it and i really didn't want to i wanted to resist because i felt that the what was going on in the book was was a was a world in itself and the people could come later but i wanted to enjoy the sort of mental music and trying to imagine it rather than mm. going and playing something because that, that seemed that seemed in a way sort of facile and obvious and too easy and also as you've just said i might have got the wrong thing <laughs> so, i might have got a bad i might have got a bad one <laughs> i've just done almost the identical thing with gabriel josephici's marvelous latest work of fiction infinity the story of a moment and he takes as his um, protagonist a Sicilian nobleman who's a composer. And I found out later that this composer was based on someone who died, I think, in, the, in 1970 sometime. I'm not very good at dates, but I think that's when he died. So yes, this chap, a version of him really did exist. And it was only after reading the book for the second time, actually, that I listened to some of his music. So I did exactly the same as you. I think it's rather nice to do that all together, to let the imagination take over in the first instance. Having said that, those who read music, know music, would be able to get some of these intervals and so on that are described um, in literal terms in the mm. book. And they would also be able to sight read the music that appears in the book. Yeah, I did attempt that, but the grace notes are pretty tough. <laughs> the grace notes are awful. And also, I mean, you, 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 it comes up at least once in the book, the fact that it's very, very difficult to notate. I mean, you've talked about the scale, so it's very difficult to sort of hear it in the inner ear if what are you used to is sort of Western conventional, well-tempered yeah. classical music. Yes. I found out relatively recently, I find this fascinating because there are all kinds of issues going on for me in the writing of it, you know, you'll know how how important, uh, what a huge influence the modernists have been on my work and thinking about Wolf in particular, talking about this kind of performance aspect of work. And that took me back to thinking about 
classical tragedy and the way one sets up the context for the artwork to be delivered. All, all things very close to my mind in the creating of this book where I have my landscape where the story can happen and so on. Now before the, dra the great dramas of Aeschylus and Euripides uh, were played out, we know that there was a sacrifice, blood was spilt, wine was drunk and music was played. People were given a kind of, um, they were, an atmosphere was created for them and music was part of how that atmosphere was created and I found relatively recently that we think that the kinds of pipes that would have been played then were very similar to the uh, bagpipe pipes with very similar kind of scale with these unusual intervals. How does it feel to have left this world behind or do you feel you've left this world behind or is it is it no, in you still? I'm still roaming around in it you know I really am I think it's going to be a long time until I can leave it in part this is because the book has taken so long in part it's for the reasons we talked about that it's going out into a number of other directions uh, we're talking about making a particular kind of film there's talk about kind of a play that also sits within the book and there are musical developments and art projects so no and, and that well, for all these reasons the book's very much with me at some point I suppose a bit like the piper I'll walk over the edge of the hill and you won't and, and I won't be in that landscape anymore but at the moment I'm very much there and can't leave it Kirsty Gunn the Big Music is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber Podcast in the search box, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.